This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com. Another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone! Dea, Tea, Dara, Tea. Your vital essence, the Dark Crystal. Kida, Kida. Come, come, see for yourself. Aru, Garu. How very interesting. Dea, Tea. I feel the song of Thra in my heart! Now go, you heroes of Thra! Thank you for joining Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm solo today without um, the the owner and slash host of the show, Philip Mitchell, who lives in Australia, but I'm doing this alone, and uh, I'm doing this for the show. Today I'm joined by uh, two guests who've been on the show before uh, from what a workshop and we're here to talk about two very amazing pieces Irva the Archer and Skekmal the Hunter and these pieces were released uh, for order about two three weeks ago is that about right yeah I think uh, Irva was a little earlier and uh, and Skekmal yeah. three weeks ago yeah but they're available pre-order now yeah awesome so thanks for coming on Stephen Saunders and Daniel Falconer cool, cool. happy to have you back thanks, thanks for, having for having us back uh, so first, I want to kind of get right into this and ask about how, when you guys are making the decisions for which figures you're going to produce, when were these decisions made for these two? Was it based on popularity? How was what was that process like? Well, uh, so uh, when we picked up the license for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, this was um, gosh at least a year before the show debuted. Uh, and we, uh, based on what we knew of the show at that time, which was uh, from reading um, some script outlines and seeing concept art and a handful of uh, behind the scenes pictures, we developed a speculative uh, line plan, which was basically just sitting down going, looking at it going, oh my God, what would be cool? Uh, and, you know, those are my favorite kind of times on a project because, you know, anything's possible in that point. So it's lots of fun conversations, exploring ideas. And then we would sort of argue those choices backwards and forwards. And, you know, there's a lot of guesswork at that point because you're, you're guessing, well, what's going to resonate with people, you know. Uh, now, luckily, with the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, we've already got, you know, a, 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 the amazing original film from 1982 in everybody's mind. So there are certain things that we, we knew for sure from that. Um, and uh, uh, that, that, uh, that helped inform our choices and, and our guesses at what we thought might work. Um, and what we wanted to do was design a line that had uh, some smaller pieces uh, that would be more affordable, uh, namely the Gelflings and, and uh, Hup and little Baffy, who was, was tried to be, we tried to make him the most affordable character in the line. Um, and then some bigger pieces that were um, going to definitely command a higher price point because of their size and complexity, which included um, the Skeksis and uh, at the time, a Mystic. So, um, early on, we weren't sure when, you know, which ones, what order they would come out in, but we had a, a basic lineup, which was what we'd do at least all the main three Gelfling, um, Hup, and then, uh, had, you know, a bunch of Skeksis and, 
we could see at that time from what we had seen in the script, there were only two mystics in the show. And so then the choice became, which one do we do? Um, and uh, that choice in the end was made by, um, and again, this is way before the show had actually come out. So we were still guessing at this point to some degree. Um, the thought was, well, if we're going to do two and we're definitely going to do the hunter because he's the big bad of the show. Then it makes kind of sense to play into that whole uh, duality that there is in Dark Crystal Law, where if you do one character, then you also want to do their their opposite and equal. So you know, given that they are split life forms, it made sense to do Irvar the Archer in conjunction with with Sigmar <coughs> the Hunter. So that's kind of how it played out. And we actually launched into starting the all of these pieces. All the pieces that you've seen so far in our line were actually begun, uh, or most of them were begun long before the show came out. And, uh, and we kind of um, ripped into them at that point and then some of them slowed down as we were developing them while we waited to sort of respond to what, what, how people were uh, um, receiving the first ones that we released. Um, uh, so the order that they actually came out in is a little different from what we originally had in mind. The original plan was to have Beat, Rian and Brea out like day one, like even before the show. And then we had a few delays and so uh, Deep got kind of bumped back a wee bit in the order, Hup got pulled forward. Um, and the Skeksis likewise got a bit sort of bumped out of order. The Chamberlain was going to be the very first one. Um, uh, but he got bumped right back. And you guys haven't even seen him yet. So <laughs> he's, he's still quite a wee way away um, because we had to space them out. But uh, yeah, so that's how that ended up kind of happening. Um, and we got, uh, the, the, so, they, so to some degree, they were being developed alongside each other. Um, the hunter and the archer were being sculpted at much the same time. The hunter was being sculpted physically. The hunter was, uh, sorry, bigger pardon, the archer was being sculpted physically. The hunter was being sculpted digitally. Uh, and we actually um, reached out to a, uh, because we had we'd hit our capacity with our own sculptors, because we've also got multiple other lines and movies and stuff like that going on at the same time. So we actually reached out and brought in a freelance sculptor on, on the hunter, which was um, Adrian Tabalda, and I apologize to Adrian if I've just massacred his last name. He's from Argentina, uh, does beautiful, beautiful work. Oh, thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Say that again. Adrian Tabuada. There we go. Thank you. Yes. I'm uh, sure so I'm he, also not getting it 100% right. You probably got closer than I did, though. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so he, he worked on uh, our Skekmail piece digitally did a really good job. Um, and there, then once we got his model uh, from him, uh, we also did a few little tweaks to it. Um, once we got it back inside the Weta workshop, um, they, those were mostly done by uh, our in-house sculptor, Gary Hunt. Um, so it's kind of a joint piece, but with a lot of most of the heavy lifting done uh, by Adrian. And then Gary did a beautiful job with a lot of the fabric components on it, which are very, very difficult to sculpt. Uh, digitally at the best of times, but my goodness, on the Hunter, even more difficult because you've got multi-layers of translucency going on and, and all this kind of stuff, lots of textures. So that was quite a challenging uh, piece, hence why it was a, a, a two-sculptor project. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how they came together. Here's the, the burning question that I have about Irva. It's mm. a huge piece and he's got four arms. Yeah. Obviously, I know that the, the Skeksis have little arms too. How do you go about creating a figure that you can package and sell that won't break with, with that kind of action like what was the it seemed to me that figure itself probably took the most planning of all of them i don't know yes. just based off of his, his, his movement or his 
the movement that he's in. Yeah, uh, and Stephen, please I jump in at any point on this with me. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but most definitely, uh, he was a very complex piece. Uh, he was sculpted by uh, by Howe, who also sculpted uh, the uh, emperor and the scientist for us. So he already had those two under his belt before he started on um, uh, the archer. Um, and uh, we thought with the archer, because both the archer and the um, hunter are slightly more action-oriented characters, or at least in the early treatments that we read, that seemed to be the case. Um, the archer became less of an action character in the final show, as we saw. But in the early treatments that we, we read, we, he was climbing trees and leaping and fighting very, very physically, very, very unlike what we've seen from a mystic before. So, so the pose was originally designed with him climbing up into a tree, firing his arrows down. We thought um, we wanted to do at least one of the characters in a more dynamic action pose, because you can't really do dynamic action poses with characters that are basically just a, um, a lot of robes. Uh, like most of the sketches would look kind of crazy if we tried to put them in in wicked, you know, weird action poses. But we figured it could work for the archer and it could work for the hunter because they are those kind of characters. Um, but yeah, that meant lifting the arms up and putting them in this in this sort of crazy pose with lots of different components going on. So there's multiple layers and, and lots of lots of elements and lots of components to that piece, uh, which was then quite challenging because that becomes quite a challenge in production. Uh, so that's why uh, the the archer actually ended up being one of them, well, the more expensive piece in the line at this point. It wasn't originally the plan, but but we very quickly realized, one, he's a very large character. The mystics are massive. I mean, you've got huge performers in these characters, big, strong guys uh, performing these characters, uh, then folded up into these sort of weird contorted shapes. And then you've got all the layers over the top of them and of, of the puppet and the big long tail and everything. So he very, very quickly became quite a large piece. So. Uh, while we originally had hope that he might retail for the same price as the Skeksis, we just it just it became very apparent that it wasn't going to be possible. He would have to be in a higher tier. Um, and then elevating him up, as I say, originally he was sculpted onto into a, a tree branch. Now, when we finally saw the show, um, the sculptor the sculptor had already um, he was quite a long way along with the statue at that point. We finally saw the show and we we're like, oh, well, he doesn't climb trees and leap and leap through the branches or anything like that there. So. So it didn't seem appropriate anymore to have him in this tree. So we changed that and put him instead on a, uh, a big chunk of rock kind of leaning out that kind of evokes in some ways the circle of the sun scene where he's, you know, he's climbed up and he's up there with, um, with the wanderer yeah. and, uh, and the heretic. Um, so that's sort of how that came about and that shift in it. But it was already a huge piece even before we added the rock to it. But what it does also do is, is it helps elevate the archer somewhat because the mystics are for the most part, fairly horizontal characters. So giving them a little bit of height, giving them that rock to sit on, I think kind of elevated them and gave the piece a bit more air underneath it, made it feel a little bit lighter, uh, which we wanted it to feel. It's uh, one of the things we, we often discuss internally. One of the requirements for a collectible is for it to have a really amazing silhouette. Uh, if you blacked out the character and you put a light behind it, what does it look like? And uh, that archer, piece has the just the the best of the way i find with a little bit of terrain and everything around it mm -hmm. we had yeah. this interesting conversation hey daniel about the base where we had to make the hard decision because it was such a beautiful sculpture of the tree that he was on to change course and try and do a rock fast 
Yeah. <laughs> so I think I just, I disappeared with a sculpture for a few hours and came back having just broken bits of rocks up and quickly smashed a, a new one out before anybody could complain and say, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think you did a beautiful job with that, Stephen. It really works for it and offers a lovely contrast between the texture and colors in the rock and the, um, the textures yeah, and colors it, in, in the art. It was itself. really our, our model maker, Leonard, that then took my block out and really made it beautiful and perfect. Yeah, he did. He did. And then uh, our, our um, painter, Jules, did a really beautiful job with the paint job on it, including adding like those little veins of quartz that run through the rock too. So we didn't want it just yeah. to be a big slab of brown, you know. Uh, we wanted to give it some some colour. So there are little, little um, uh, fine veins of sort of white and purple running through it to give it that kind of crystalline, beautiful, dark crystal quality that everything, everything in that show has that, right? There's this just fantastic attention to detail so that nothing is mm. just a rock. It's always something more interesting than that. And we, we tried to honor those creative choices with the collectibles as well. Why did you guys decide with Irva to sculpt him physically as opposed to digitally? What was the, what was the difference there? Just because of his size and you needed to Should physically or in three dimension work out yeah. what each piece was going to be? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, a lot of that comes down to sculptor availability and what the, who, how our sculptors prefer to work. Um, so Howe was very much a physical sculptor. He was available and he had he wanted to do that piece. So that therefore that was part of what drove it that way. Um, there were digital components as well. We received a, uh, a scan of the character's head uh and and some of the elements of the costume is that right Stephen what what parts were there was the bow and the yeah the we we had the bow we had I feel like maybe the hands definitely yeah, the face the and um what we call hard surface surfaces of the costume so the the padding some of the padding components um but there was enough there that we didn't have to justify doing it Sculpturally. Having said that, when, when we get these 3D models, we do tend to print them out, mold them and cast them in clay. And in this case, how, case how the sculptor would work back into it and put a huge amount of handcrafted detail back into it um, and just liven up all the, all the finishes and details and get yeah. the expression right. Yeah, expression, exactly. I mean, you, you want that uh, when we receive the scans, they tend to be fairly static. So you want to go through and add that, that character, that life to it. Um, and also, um, because what we're working on is one six scale, so it's a lot smaller. Um, what tends to happen is as you as you shrink things down, obviously the detail gets shrunk as well. And so sometimes the, the detail can be lost a little bit. So he's, he's gone through and he's kind of overemphasized and punched some of that detail back out. So if you were to scale that back up to life size, it would probably be, be the detail would be be too chunky, but, but it works at the smaller scale for your eye to be able to read it and for it to give us surfaces that the paint can run into when we put washes on it and that kind of stuff as well. How, how has this unique way of sculpting where he's not he's not a hundred percent a hundred and ten percent accurate like we always are with his details but he's a hundred and twenty percent the aesthetic of what it should be so he he pushes his caricaturization almost further than i would usually go and far enough that i'm now trying to 
almost emulate the the best parts of that myself. It's really quite beautiful. It's a very fine uh, fine art of figuring out how much to caricaturize things at six scale, and mm. still have it very true to the original. And he's done that on all of these pieces beautifully. What was the um... Uh, again, I don't know how much, if there's uh, a certain amount of time you spend in research and development for these these figures. I would imagine some are a little bit faster than the others. Again, as I think about and have seen some of the video and the photos of Irva, um, I first, I, I'm always thinking about process. So I'm thinking, well, how did they figure out, okay, he's going to have the bow. He's going to be in, like, and you got to package him too. Um, and he's not going to break. How did yeah. you near that what was the time like on that to make sure that going to you know work it's going to work in the masses that you have to produce it in it's going to be able to ship and all of that i can imagine it's probably a longer curve than say the gelflings or maybe even some of the skexies which seem a little bit more Intact. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Um, we a lot of that time, those kind of decisions we rely on the experience, uh, and particularly uh, Gareth uh, McConnell, who oversees uh, the development of all our pieces, and he is the one that will go to China and and actually make sure that um, when we're actually producing them, um, that uh, that what the what our what our manufacturers produce matches our prototypes and also that it can be shipped safely and all that kind of stuff as well exactly all the little things that you so gareth is there every step of the way and he's you know whenever whenever we have a review of a piece he's looking over our shoulders and and he's like uh you know what if we change this it there's a better chance that's going to arrive at people's houses without being broken you know <laughs> um you know that, that's all that kind of stuff is really we rely on his advice to look at that kind of thing and make those kind of calls and obviously our own experience as well you know Stephen and i working on these for years now um you get a sense usually of what's going to work and what's not going to and we can try and adjust as we go along but it's definitely i mean it is an artistic process so everything's everyone we everything we do is a prototype and so you you're kind of learning as you go to some degree that's that's the one thing we have to deal with on a daily basis that every single thing we do is a new bespoke completely original thing on on a daily hourly basis so uh, as much as you try and <laughs> plan everything exactly out there's always going to be a few bumps in the road but those are creative bumps in there they're worth doing because it keeps us on our toes daniel always does these really detailed and really uh, clear inspirational designs that we start from so we always start with a really good plan there's always a case of a little bit of exploration and discovery once we've started in digital physical form beyond that but we're all reasonable people. We, we think about these things reasonably. We, we live in two camps. We live in the reasonable place where we try and make these things work logically and creatively where we try and push, push out <laughs> as far as we can and still get away with it. Uh, <laughs> And That's yeah, I thought, yeah, it can be a bit I of think, a battle sometimes where we're like, oh man, we wanted to be able to do this. And then, you know, the more practical members of our team come in and go, well, that's going to be really problematic for us to produce. And we're like, yeah, I, we've got to try, you know, and like, like, I mean, goodness, let's talk about that with respect to deep, right? You know, do we have these yeah. wings open or we have them closed? Well, the practical answer is no, we close them up because that's safer, but they're so much more glorious open. And so, you know, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we win those arguments. <laughs> we had to do. We had to do that. 
I, I, I consider it to be my responsibility to both push for the most extreme cool solution and then also be part of the solution and actually making it work. Uh, yeah. Because there are I mean, other people example, on the team who have to get it right. Another example of that would be um, the question of uh, the uh, Skekmau's mask. Um, so in the scene that we've depicted him in, he's, in, he's intended to be in the, the swamp fighting. Uh, the idea being you can pose the statue alongside Rian and kind of reenact the moment where they're fighting at the edge of the swallow bog um, with all the little uh, uh, gobbles. Um, and at that point, at the point that we've sculpted him, he's got like uh, one side of his mask smashed away and you can see his face underneath on one side and the other side is the mask. Um, we did look into whether or not we maybe could actually make it so that you could make the mask removable and you can have the whole mask or the half mask or no mask, which ultimately would have been amazing. But given how much that particular collectible was pushing the boundary of what we could afford to do within the budget anyway, with his arms up and the weapons and all the fabric and that kind of stuff. Uh, ultimately, in the end, we, we had to let that idea go. And we felt that doing the half mask was kind of the best of both worlds, where you at least got to see part of his face and you got the mask. But, uh, you know, in an ideal world, we would have done, we would have made it removable and you could, the collector could actually decide which way it was. But practicality is the depth of win in that particular instance. I want to move on to Skekmaw, but my last question about uh, in terms of Irva, or mm. maybe we'll circle back around. But I just in seeing some behind the behind the scenes photos of the construction and the sculpt of him, it, he looked like. I mean, I'm sure all of these figures are a lot of fun. Obviously, also a lot of work uh, in terms of working them out and the details. Irva seemed like more fun for whatever reason. Yeah, was, was he particularly? Or, more challenging or, or is it doesn't work like that it just it, it is what it is and you move on to the next one was he something you guys were rooting for like but also like it just the photos of him had a different energy than the photos of the others he just seemed more like whoa we're doing a mystic finally <laughs> that's i mean that's very perceptive of you i think definitely obviously because we could really go to town with the poses of these two characters in particular more so than some of the others um that, that I think helps to give it that energy you're talking about. But also at, at, at a certain practical level, there's just so much surface area on Ovar to sculpt that, that most definitely it was a, a, a much bigger process. It was a much uh, bigger deal. And, and also at that point when we realized that, you know what, this is actually gonna be a pretty huge statue. It's gonna be a more expensive statue than the other. And also to some extent, the gloves come off a little bit because when you're doing a bigger, more expensive piece, you've got a bit more time to really, really lean into those details and finesse it and, and go crazy on it. And and that's one instance where we could have a bit of fun and do things like, uh, one of my favorite things on the sculpture is when you turn it around, there's actually this beautiful little creature coming out of a, like a hole in the rock and, and crawling around on the side. That kind of stuff is definitely, that's that place of the sense of fun that you're talking about. And most definitely that kind of stuff is super, super fun to do. So we could That's indulge awesome. ourselves a little bit more on him than perhaps we could on some of the others where we had to be a little bit more mindful. Uh, the, the, whole point, the whole point of what a workshop, at, at least for me personally, <laughs> is that um, you get to experience more of the cool uh, creative process through other people, through your um, proximity to other people than the stuff you can actually ever physically do yourself or be involved in yourself so um 
being able to just visit other sculptors and other painters and people doing their own doing their own thing is really quite fantastic yeah yeah that's a really beautiful way of putting it uh so let's if we move on to uh Skekmal, uh in tandem with irva did you was the plan like to make if you were you just going to make Skekmal? And as a one-off, or did you decide, no, we have to make both of them? And and I'm sort of asking that question because I think of fan favorites and who comes to mind is um, um, The Wanderer and the other guy. I can't oh, remember his name yeah. right now. Um, the, uh, yeah, yeah, The Heretic. Yeah, The Heretic. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, they're pretty popular characters. Yeah. And I would yeah. imagine maybe... So with can't... the choice... Go ahead. I was going to say, when the choice was made as to which characters we were going to do in the first sort of year of our plan, uh, we had no imagery of the heretic or the wanderer at that point. But having read the outline, I was like, oh, man, these two characters are going to be standouts. I can't wait for us to, to get to them. So we had, we had to commit to a plan before we, had, we could see what those characters looked like, before we had any reference to them. Um, but even so, I think because this, the, the hunter was always going to be one of the pieces in the line, it made sense that the, that, that the archer was as well. And, and I, I'm glad we kind of made that choice because when you see him in the show, he's, he's just such a wonderful, memorable character. I think he, is, he needed his place there. Now, um, of course, the hope is that we keep going and we do the, the wanderer and, uh, and the heretic as well because I think they're probably my favorite characters in the whole show. <laughs> they're just awesome and that plays back to the thing which i think i say every single time we have one of these conversations which is we were so spoiled for choice like there are so many characters that you need to make so anytime we make one choice you're saying no to another character like oh man how can we not do that character so my hope is we get to keep going and and those guys will be in the next year's plan you know um <clears throat> but but yeah we definitely wanted to have that that whole idea of you do a skepsis and a mystic and you you put them together and you've got the two of them um together so yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a world in which we don't do, in which we do the heretic, but you don't do the wanderer or vice versa, right? You know, you've you got to do them both. Yeah. Totally. So, okay, yeah, and that was sort of my question about Skekmal and Irva. Like, yeah, they go we're together. Doing, they go together, yeah, for sure. They do. And, yeah. of course, my brain goes off into you guys making a diorama of the, the wanderers and the heretics i mean it's just so fantastic how could you not of course i know it's expensive and there has to be demand for it but yeah i i uh i'm curious in terms of skekmal because i think his he's got that stance where his yes the arms are out and there was some also again some engineering that has to go into it and um he's not like the other skeks his 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 physicality is different he looks different um the, the, the upper part of his body is a little bit similar but was there any challenges because he had a specific difference compared to the others that you had been working on yeah he was a more complex sculpt for sure um because of his stance because his, because he's got you know um forearms that are quite visible and out and open he's got legs you know and most of the other skexies are essentially big salt shakers you know their clothes their robes fall all the way to the ground so we don't have to worry about sculpting their legs or anything like that so he has a more challenging engineering um uh the, the engineering is more challenging in him than the others um and the surf there's more surface area to detail um the challenge for us was actually bringing him in at the same pricing as the other Skeksis because of all of that. So, I um, mean, great credit to Jenny Zhang, who actually manages the, uh, the, the stuff that I have no understanding of in this, which is how you actually make the economics of it work. Uh, and she somehow, through her 
uh, spreadsheet sorcery managed to, uh, to make it work so that we could actually release them and at the same pricing as the rest of the Skeksis in the line. That, that, that was definitely one of, the, one of the big challenges for us. But there's a, diff a definite difference in size of Skekmaw and, and the rest of the Skeksis, and certainly the Skeksis that you've done. How do you find out what that is? What what is it just a scale thing? Oh. You're like, okay, this is the scale for here, but Skekmal is different a different size, whereas the other Skeksis are relatively the same size. Skekmal is not. How do you approach that? In his case, he was he was actually quite clearly a one suit performer creature suit. So there is an actor in there. And also we were provided a scan of the entire costume, which we only had for a few of the smaller Gelflings, the entire thing. I don't think there's any other bigger character that we had anywhere near the same amount of digital reference for. And that reference is, those scans are given to us at one-to-one -one scale. So we, it's quite, it's quite a simple case of just scaling it down to six scale. In some cases, it's actually quite a lot of research with certainly some of the other Skeksis figuring out what scale they are, mm -hmm. because there are suit performers uh, one or two in each one, but they also, Daniel, it, I, I, I seem to recall there was a whole issue with they cut, they cut holes in the floor of yeah. the set to make them shorter than a human standing up would be. So um, it, there's a lot of tricks in how they're filmed that affects the scale that we choose to present. Which, which is an ongoing thing that we have with other scale visual effects characters in other uh, yeah. collectibles that we do, that yeah. they, they appear slightly different scales and different shots. And it's certainly the case here as well. Um, yeah, if, if anything, uh, the Gelflings, because they are puppets, and we had scans of the puppets, and the Hunter, because he was a creature performer, and we know the size of that performer, we had a pretty accurate scaling. With the other ones, it becomes a little harder. Yeah, and I, I just want to clarify too, you've, you've mentioned um, it's a simple process taking the one-to-one -one scans and scaling them down. That part of the process is definitely simple, and that gives you a reference size-wise to work with. But of course, mm. all that detail, all that material, that those, those sculptural details have to be re-sculpted. You aren't able to simply oh, yes. use Oh, yeah, yeah. We, um, so we have, we have never taken a scan and just used it as is. Um, and the other thing that we've tried to do too, and this was something that we conceived right at the very beginning of the process, was I wanted as much as possible a lot of the creative choices in, in this line to be driven by uh, things that were germane to the world. And so one of the things we decided was, well, we've got this wonderful gift whereby you've got characters of different sizes um, and we want to have a line of, of collectibles that are at different sizes and different price points so that there's an entry point for people in different budgets, right? Not everybody's going to be able to afford to buy uh, an archer, but hopefully most people can afford to buy a, a Gelfling or, or, a, or maybe even a Fizz gig. It's like, okay, well, we then we, need, we figured out we needed three base sizes uh, for this very smallest, the medium size and the largest characters. And so we base those base sizes. And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, it bears uh, repeating. On, on the three different sons of uh, that that uh, of Thra and the skies of Thra, so so those the proportional difference between those uh, bases is exactly the same as the proportional difference between those those sons, and and then also the concentric rings in Augur's uh, eyes. So again, all those choices come back to what's in the lore of the world, 
and therefore proportionally they feel right next to each other. Now then the challenge was when we got to Irvar, we're like, well, he's too big to fit on the biggest base that we've got. So we're like, oh no, what are we going to do? And I can't remember, Stephen, if it was you that suggested it, because I think we were talking about maybe, oh, well, do we do a double base or something? I, I think it might have been you, or maybe it was somebody else, correct me if I'm wrong, who suggested, well, why don't we take one of each of those uh, bases and put them together so they're actually overlapping each other. And that's how we create the largest base that, uh, that can accommodate Irvar um, at his full size. So his base is uh, essentially the biggest, the smallest, and the medium-sized bases all put together, kind of overlapping, almost like a conjunction of, of circles. That's that's I'm definitely to too clever to have been me. <laughs> well, it's a cute detail, anyway. I can't remember who suggested that idea, but but it worked really well, and, uh, yeah. and it helps with his stability too. It stops him from tipping over. That was a question that I was next. I kind of want to. It relates a little bit to Irva. Is how do you get these things to balance, especially Irva, where so there's weight moving and i know we have this question i had this question about deet because she's her tippy toe is on the rock and so there's there's balance there but herb is a much bigger thing so balance is key um how do you just how, how does that happen where you distribute weight in a figure like that we push it as far as we dare um obviously we don't want people to have them fall over on their shelves, but, but it's fun having characters that are cantilevered out at odd angles or in dynamic poses. That, and this, less so in the Dark Crystal, but much more in our Lord of the Rings and Hobbit uh, collectibles. We try and do stuff every now and again where a character is doing something wild, like leaping and, and really push them out there. Um, so we have some experience doing that kind of stuff. Um, and it, a lot of the time it comes down to just physically mocking it up and, and seeing how far we can push it and have it still be stable. But it's really nice to get some air under those collectibles, right? You know, elevate them, have them doing something cool. But it also means then that they need uh, structures inside them a lot of the time to, to make sure that, that they will uh, stay together and not fall off. With the physical sculptures that's done in clay, just the mere fact that the sculptor needs to keep the clay up usually means that it's already naturally balanced in the in the volume of clay that he's sculpting in. Yeah. So that helps a lot. And even, and then I think also like Deet, for example, too, there's a slight tweak between the very first one we made and, and what went into production, which I think is her, her contact point on her foot is a little lower in the production version than what we very first mocked up. So I think we had her yeah. on her absolute tippy toes. I think we've we slid that down. So it's actually now more the ball of her foot that contacts with the branch. Uh, but yeah. people will be able to see that very soon because uh, I got word that I think I've, not, I've seen images of, uh, of Skeptech and Augra getting out to people um, just this week. So the, the warehouses are now, uh, uh, I believe they're shipping out uh, Skeptech and Augra and Deet and Hup and Rian and, and Brio actually. Actually, is Deet out? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm over speaking. Deet's not Deet. quite up. No, no not, not quite. Okay, yeah. Deet's a little bit further behind. I beg your pardon, I misspoke there. It's Brio that I was thinking Don't tease about me. now. Don't tease yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, looking at I'm looking at a photo of Skekmal right now and of course all of these figures have been very detailed you know that's what you guys are known for it's amazing but the detail on Skekmal is a little different it's very specific it's not so much like um, fabric and layers of fabric it's bones it's um, bones and fabric and um, it's very strange and of course his his swords in his hands and then the bones coming that's a lot of work and like how do you was that a longer process to come up with 
obviously you're going to make it look like the the show because you can't not do that. Who wouldn't? Mm, yeah. um, but how do you approach a design like that where it's, again, it's just very different and it's very specific and there's a lot of things that could break? Yeah, I mean, we're led by what we see. So we basically try and, and replicate what, we're, what, we have to, what we see in the show. So, so you're absolutely right. So Irva and, and Skekma both took longer to sculpt than any of the other pieces for exactly those reasons. And then again, you've got, I've got, you know, Gareth over our shoulder at them going, eh, that little piece is going to be a breakage issue. Let's either lay that down rather than having it stand up or we'll shorten it. I mean, luckily we really haven't had to compromise the designs of the characters very much at all. Mm -hmm. um, we'd be very lucky in that respect. When the thing is shipped, when Skekmal is shipped, do the arms in the back pop off? And then I don't they, actually know. Do you, do, so I believe so. Yes, yes. I remember when you guys talked about Deet, you said that her wings are um, magnetized or something like that, and they snap back in or whatever. I was just curious. So here's a here's a, an odd question, but how many, roughly, how many swords do you end, or whatever those things here he's holding, how many of those <laughs> do you end up making for these? Like 500? Like, how, how does that? Do you even know, like a ballpark? I'm just curious because there's so many little pieces to these things. What the production on something like that is? Uh, I'm actually not sure of the practicalities of that. I mean, we always make a few extra so that okay. we have replacements if there is ever something that goes wrong in transit. But you plan for something not to go wrong in, tra totally. in transit uh, and for them to ship. Uh, so, so yeah, I, as far as I'm aware, they probably do ship. So I think they, um, I'm fairly sure that the arms come off but I haven't seen an, in, an inboxed sample to see exactly how it breaks no. down, how many pieces. We, yeah. we make our recommendations that our manufacturers will also make some changes according to what they think works. Gotcha. Um, but we generally do have a few extras, of course, yes, for the, for the when the unthinkable happens. We just hope it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my next question would be... We just open the box and have this beautiful piece all in one there. And, and, and yeah. fortunately, for the most part, they do. But every now and again, one doesn't arrive. You never know. We can't... Uh, ever fully know what kind of journey these things are going to go to from when they leave our care to, to, to arriving in somebody's home you know who knows when they've been kicked down the road by somebody or fallen off the back of a truck or something you <laughs> know that doesn't happen but but um they test these things by literally dropping them off a second floor build of, of, of a building to, to make sure that the packaging yeah. is going to work so it's, it's wow. usually fairly robust but you know there are always every now and again there'll be a breakage and we do we, we try to do our absolute best to make sure that we we uh, can replace those for our customers and when that does occur got it uh so uh, another kind of tech question just because i'm fascinated by it hopefully the listeners are fascinated too um when <laughs> so these things are when they're the sculpt is finalized then they get mass produced however you guys do that and there's people who sit in your shop painting them right um, so then where, what's the next journey for when the thing is done and dry or whatever, where do they go from there? So you're saying you're asking, uh, what the steps in the process are. I mean, essentially they go straight into their boxes and, 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 and shipped out basically at that point. Um, okay. so yeah, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we paint our masters at Weta, um, uh, in the beginning and, and our manufacturers, um, produce them and obviously replicate our paint jobs as well. Um, so okay. that all happens in the same, uh, facilities. And then they get shipped from there to our to our distribution points around the world and our warehouses, which I think we have three or four in different parts of the world to try and minimize the shipping cost to our customers from, from those hubs. Okay. One right. of the parts of the process I always find interesting is that we have to do what we call QC, quality control. Mm -hmm. So someone has to eyeball every single statue 
and compare it back to the original master paint paint master. So it's somebody's job to look at hundreds and hundreds of these. I've done I've done it on some of my Gandalf pieces in the past, and it's tiring. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big um, job, yeah. But but yeah, you go through and you you pick every tiny little bit that might be different, put them aside, and they have to go back into production and get recycled and made perfect. That's a that's a huge thing. I mean, everything that we pack in a box has to represent the best we could do to match that original first one. So and we're constantly for ways to, to tweak that and, and improve it too. So, you know, for example, with Rian, um, the first run that came out, um, uh, well, actually, back up, the very first Rians that we did, um, the, the comment came through from, from uh, Jim Henson Company that the, the hair was too dark. And so we're like, okay, cool. So, but at that point, it was already in production. So we sent the note to to our manufacturers to lighten that hair slightly, which they did. But then when we finally saw those, they were, I think some of them aired on the side of too light and were, were quite reddish. So we've mm. definitely tweaked that and adjusted it again so that the next run is much closer to what we had originally had in mind, which is more of a dark brown as well. So we're constantly looking at it and going, okay, how can we improve that? Um, and make sure that it lives up to our expectations and, and the customer's expectations as well. Absolutely. Uh, last tech question. So during quality control and someone's looking at looking at these to make sure they match up, what if one doesn't? Does it get sent back to the line, quote unquote, to yeah. to get to yeah. get the painted touch shop? And all? okay, okay. Um, and I the questions about like the, in terms of the journey from finalized piece to production, like. I think a lot of people are interested in terms of like where is my where is my my Rianne statue at like where is it coming from what's the journey you know how far away is it from my house like and I know you guys talked about like uh, things shipping from China before and things like that so I was just curious what that process is if sometimes you know people think it's coming from New Zealand to our house which it kind of is but there's sometimes it is yeah stop sometimes it is yeah okay yeah, when we have we do have a distribution hub in these, like literally right next to it, like goodness, a matter of feet away from where Stephen and I work um, is is where a whole lot of the stock comes in when we come into New Zealand, and we ship it out from there to Australia or to to customers in New Zealand. Um, but the other distribution hubs, uh, I would be misspeaking if I tried to tell you exactly where they are, which cities, because mm. I haven't visited them all, and at the moment nobody's visiting anywhere. But oh, yeah. uh, but <laughs> all, all all around the world, there's some in Europe, there's some in the states. Yeah, got it. Uh, so in terms of the future, uh, you guys are still working on more ideas and more yep. dark crystal There's things more cool that might be coming. coming. Um, we promised the, uh, the, the Chamberlain, so he will be coming. Um, however, because awesome. we also appreciate that, that um, the Hunter and the Archer are both very large and quite expensive pieces, and they're both releasing quite close together, we, we do appreciate we, you know, uh, I'm a collector myself, and so you know I understand that that is a point at which you're like, okay, slow down too much. <laughs> you know, I, I really want to get these, but I can't get them. Keep getting them if you bring them out too, you know, at uh, too close together and at quite a, as a, an accelerated rate. So, so there'll be a bit of a pause for a while after these two to give people time to recover and you know to work on payment plans, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we don't want you know I, I i'm very familiar with the awkward conversations at home when you you um there's something that you really love and you you spend that money without necessarily consulting with your significant other and <laughs> the conversation that happens at some point we're like oh 
Yeah. Wow, I just saw the credit card bill. And um, so, you know, we, we want to avoid <laughs> people having to have those conversations as much as possible. We, yes. we want everybody to be able to, to buy in. Um, so there'll be a little bit of a pause for a while so that the, uh, the Chamberlain is a bit further away. I don't know exact timing on that yet. Um, but uh, we have other pieces that are in early stages of development as well. So uh, it's probably too soon to say too much about those just yet. I want to leave people guessing a little bit more before we reveal what those are going to be. Um, but but awesome. more Dark Crystal awesomeness is coming that uh, you can definitely be assured of. Um, it's too awesome and fun a world for us to, to drop and run away from. We yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope we don't drop it for time a there. long time. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we get a season two at some point too, right? I mean, that would be really yeah, nice. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Uh, well, we're in September, so hopefully uh, we'll, we'll know if they win an Emmy in the yeah. next few weeks. Yeah, here's I, I would hope bodes well for a season two, if that's possible. But I'm always joking with... Um, some of my friends who, of course, are big Dark Crystal fans that they're they're robbing their kids' college funds to purchase <laughs> <laughs> um, figures, and it's, well, uh, it's quite funny. Well, you could look at the investments, <laughs> right? You know, hopefully they hold yeah, that's value true. or accrue in value, and, you know, you could actually be funding your kids through college if you can ever bring yourself to, to part with them in the future, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that was one thing that uh, we talked about. I said, you know, one day, Wed is not going to be making these anymore. Yeah. So what is exists exists, and that's it. So if you can get your hands on one, I mean, even uh, many years ago, I can't even remember the name of the people who made it, but there was a Skeksil, uh, Chamberlain without his like when he was all ragged, and they're beautiful piece, and mm. it retails on eBay for four or five hundred dollars, um, and you could buy it originally for like forty or fifty bucks, but of course they don't make them anymore. You can't find them anywhere, so. I'm always telling people buy these because you won't be able to buy them, and everyone. Will I have them. that piece. It was a it was a NECA piece. Oh, do you? It was a, yeah, oh, it was yeah, NECA. It's, it's really uh, cool. Now, I I broke mine unfortunately, so oh, I, even if even it. if I could bear bear to part with it, I wouldn't be. So because mine, so he's glued. Well, you could fix it. I'm sure. Want to buy that? But uh, but I people. love him. He's great. He's really <laughs> yeah. really cool. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good advice. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Thank you guys for uh, coming on the show to talk about Irva and Skekmal. Uh, they are gorgeous pieces, as usual. Um, like, I, I, again, I'm staring at a photo of Skekmal right now. It's just amazing. It's amazing that it's all one solid, essentially one solid piece. You guys uh, hit it out of the park every time. So, Thank you. Well, it's always such a pleasure to come on. We really love talking with you and, and geeking out together about this world that we all love. Uh, so thank you thank you so much for having us absolutely and talk to Henson about doing Jen and Kira one day yeah <laughs> oh my <laughs> god be awesome. yes They're well the... yeah when, let's but again right you know who what what else do you do from the the 1982 movie man there's just so much where do you there start is. you know what, what do you do well with... that's where you start with them because they're they've been done over the years and they haven't been done well and they're the only people who could do it right. well is probably you guys so Okay, let's let's have this conversation before we finish up. So you're developing, say, let's pretend you're designing the 1982 Dark Crystal 1-6 scale statue line, and you've got to pick like four or five to do. What would you do? Like, which Skeksis would you do? Which characters would you produce? Um, well, I would do ones that, number one, the the Urskek at the end, the one who's talking. Ah, yeah, very yeah. beautiful, very interesting design. Um, and he's syn it's synonymous with the original film, 
Absolutely, one hundred percent. I would do a Gartham. Um, although, yeah. if there's a season two, Gartham might not be synonymous with the original film. Um, but that's tough. But you know, for me, it's Jen and Kira. Those are the first two. That's yeah, out. yeah, those are great choices. Uh, I totally yeah. agree. I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't, those are the only really because I guess some pod people, Kira's oh, clan. Yeah, right. <laughs> like I think because yeah, you yeah, guys like did the... Hop, but you haven't touched any more, and they're cheap, and you could do them cheap. And you could do them like that. So those are my those are my uh, the pieces that I would say. Kira's mother, maybe someone for her clan, Jane and Kira, and the Erskek. <laughs> Find out one day, right? Okay, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> all right, we have well, these conversations all the time. I bet. Yeah, I bet. yeah. I mean, I, you know, like so many people are like, oh man, you've got to do Skeksok. Nobody's ever done a Skeksok, right? And you've got to do, um, uh, you've got to do the Gartham Master, right? You know, I mean, it's like, oh, oh my goodness, Skeksok, you yes. know, Land Strider, you know? Yes. Um, oh, yes, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash darkcrystalpodcast. Follow us on Instagram at darkcrystalpodcast and on Twitter at darkcrystalpod. If you'd like to support the show, subscribe to the podcast write a review on apple podcasts and consider being our patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash dark crystal podcast thank you all so much and stay tuned for the next episode of trial by stone This podcast is brought to you by ThamesCon, bringing conventions to Oxford and London, including the Great Conjunction, the first ever dark crystal convention in the world. For more information, visit their website at www.thegreatconjunction.com.